This episode is brought to you by the Watershape Society. Episode 24, Anatomy of an Expert Witness Case with SWD Master David Peterson and SWD Master Paolo Benedetti. They'll be discussing about the process of an expert witness case from beginning to end and how to avoid litigation. Enjoy this informative episode. Hello and welcome to the Ask the Masters podcast. This podcast is dedicated to discussions about the design and construction of water shapes. The hosts of the show are all certified SWD masters who represent the leading builders and designers within the water shaping industry today. Well, here I am today on uh, Ask the Masters with uh, fellow master Dave Peterson from Watershape Consulting. I'm Paolo Benedetti from Aquatic Technology in Morgan Hill. And today our topic, we're going to be talking about uh, expert witness work. We're talking about um, cases, talking about uh, not specific cases, but talk about um, kind of the due diligence and what happens and kind of the process of um, a expert witness case from kind of beginning to end and uh, what uh, pool contractors can do to avoid having a step foot in their projects. Yeah. Well, it uh, <laughs> it's funny. A lot, most of these cases start off with very simple things, and it often is a, a, a small argument maybe between the, the homeowner and the, and the builder. Uh, other times it might be, you know, like a crack shows up or the tile, you know, starts falling off and, and and usually there's just a lack of communication and the builder isn't willing to step up and do something about it. Uh, and so over time, that starts to wear on the owner to the point where he says, you know what, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to go get an expert. <laughs> and uh, then we get out to the field and we were called out to look at one or two small things. And it's our responsibility to find out any other issues with it. It wouldn't make sense for us to go out and just look at the crack and ignore a, an electrical problem that might actually kill somebody. So our requirement, our due diligence requires that we start digging into a lot of other things that go beyond maybe the original uh, claim. And so we end up oftentimes unraveling a lot of issues. You know, I mean, there's, uh, you're, you're really looking behind the curtain at that point. And sometimes behind the curtain is you're coring through the pool and finding voids behind the steel, the steel's in the dirt. Uh, there is no steel. I mean, that, I found that in one of our projects, just not nearly enough steel, or the spacing was much greater than the original drawings. And then we start digging into the drawings and finding problems with the engineer's construction documents. Uh, and even if things were done right, it's like, well, the engineering was faulty. And so, we end up usually unraveling a lot of things that weren't on the original docket. And that could, uh, it could be contractual issues, fraud, uh, breach of contract, um, you know, things that violate the, uh, you know, contractor state license board rules right. in terms of payments and all that kind of stuff. So all of a sudden you, you start to sort of build a case pretty easily without a whole lot of research. And, and even if it was, there was no fraudulent intent, things do become criminally fraudulent if the, the contractor is making material misrepresentations in their documents. So um, that can be anything from um, affidavits they signed out the building department when they're pulling permits, the things they're signing under perjury down there. You, know, you, you are signing on the line, you're, you're signing an affidavit down there. Um, so there's, there's those issues, but there's also when they make promises to the owners about things. 
So uh, they might promise in contracts to do things, but then they don't deliver. Whether it's, uh, you know, oftentimes we've worked some cases together over the years. Um, we go out and actually look at the contract or the original plans and say, okay, it said they're going to have this and this and this and this. And then we go, wait a minute, there's no UV and there's no ozone. Where is it? Mm -hmm. You know, you paid for it. It's in the contract, but it's not here on the equipment set. Right. So sometimes uh, it might be just sheer oversight. Um, you know, those kind of things are kind of hard to prove. But um, when there's when there's things, you know, material misrepresentations about um, the size of the pool, where it's placed, that they're hiring um, different experts, engineers, and soil um, soils engineers, and they just never come out to the site. Um, you know, things are going to start to yep to unravel. Yeah, and and I mean, documentation is really important. And some of the easiest cases have been the ones where the owner was taking video and lots of photos and. Uh, even photos, you know, at, at some point through the discovery process, everybody's information all gets pooled together into a library, and you get to see photos of the whole process as it was going on, and, and sometimes videos, and then we end up using those as evidence in, in the case. And, and, you know, a lot of homeowners are excited about the pool being built, so they're out there taking pictures of the various uh, progresses, you know, progress and phases of construction, often as after the crew leaves for the day. They go out there and just kind of documenting what's happening and, and, you know, the timelines as it goes on. So it really allows us to kind of go back without even doing destructive testing. We can actually zoom in and see exactly what happened. Um, it also helps with, with our destructive testing because we can zoom in on specific areas and say, this is an area we want to we focus on. Mm -hmm. yeah, and sometimes the photos help the builders get out of trouble, too, because I'm right. not always representing the homeowner. You know, sometimes it's the builder that's being accused of some problem. And then I can start to look at the photos and say, well, no, I mean, the, you know, they're, the owner's expert is claiming, you know, X, Y, and Z. But look, here's a photo that, you know, flies in the face of argument X. And here's right. one that disproves Y. And here's one that disproves Z. So, you know, where is the truth and what is really the root of the problem? Right. And, you know, I'm not afraid to say, you know, you as the builder, you you goof this up you got to right. go fix it or or pay for it to get fixed but um and there's a, a learning process there and it's unfortunate but i i don't want to get in that position where i'm you know okay with something bad happening on one job and i'm not okay with it on another job it's either done right or it's done wrong it's, and, pre it's pretty black and white yeah and you just you, you just lay it all out and i've made mistakes and I've just said, you know what? I got to go fix you it. Own, I, you've got to own it. I had I had a raised bond beam detail, and it had curves. We did this probably in 2005. Our my tile crew went out there, and they were putting the tile on in a in a diamond shape, and they tiled this whole back wall. And I get this call from the owner, just upset that it it, it didn't look right. So I immediately drove out there and I looked at it and I said, you're right, this is awful. <laughs> and I, you know, I hadn't been out there in two days, so I didn't see it. One of my other project managers was running it and right. just, you know, he, he thought it was acceptable, but he thought when it was grouted, it would all look right. And I said, it's never going to look right. So I it, said, it was crooked. Yeah, it was just, <laughs> it just, you know, on a, on a radius, things are just hard to do. And they were right. trying to put the, the tiles at a diamond. And I right. just said, it's not going to work on a curved wall like that. You got to straighten the tile out. You know, the tile bender? So we stripped it all out. <laughs> <laughs> we stripped it all out. 
you know, at my own expense, and I bought all new tile, and, and we just went and fixed it. But the second job wasn't done very well because the radius in, in a couple of spots was so tight that even though we now turned the tile to the right shape Correct. and didn't have the corners popping out and, you know, that funky, you know, shape. Right. If I had the, known the they tips, were doing the a diamond to begin with, I would have said it's never going to work on a radius. But even when they straightened it out, it didn't quite look right. So guess what? Yeah, I told them to do it again. So and we did it three times. Uh, we ended did you up pick smaller also. tiles the last time so they could <laughs> we, actually Yeah, we work went the with a smaller tile right. and you know that was that was one of the problems. You know, it's, it's, just, it's finding those real old time craftsmen that have the board stretchers and the tile benders. <laughs> <laughs> there aren't there are very few of those craftsmen out there yeah. that, that can make that stuff work. But it's about, you know, communication and just getting things right and I think if the builders when they're first accused of of having a problem would just say, "You know what? I we, we goof this up, we're gonna fix it. It makes everything go a lot smoother. And I've had builders call me up and say, I built this pool, it's been great for three years, it's got a crack in it. Um, before this thing blows up in our face, I told the owner that I will fly you out there and get an engineer to look at this. And then I end up developing you know, a, a, a relationship between all of them to try to resolve it uh, try, with the try understanding to, try, to, try to mediate it yeah and, and be proactive right yeah i mean clearly one person's paying my bill to come out there and as an engineer you know you're supposed to you know really focus on on your client but in that kind of a situation it's a, it's not a confrontational thing it's right. the the owner and the builder have kept good communication and they've both agreed that bringing in a third party to not even mediate the situation, just to figure out what is the best solution to fix this. And if I come up with a $20,000 solution, the builder goes, great, that's better than the $200,000 lawsuit I was facing right. a week ago, so we'll do it. And, and everyone moves forward and, and it's a much better deal, you know? Um, so it, it could work both ways, uh, finding out about all the, these little details and everything and, and working for either builders or the owners. To me, it doesn't really matter. It's, you know, whoever gets to me first, I guess, gets yep. the benefit of my expertise. And, and one thing is, as an expert witness that I always make sure that, that um, I tell clients is, look, the cards are going to fall where they fall. And if I'm hired by the homeowner or hired by the builder, I said, you know, my job is to call it like I see it. And just because you're paying my bill doesn't mean that I'm going to all, I'm going to render an opinion that's positive, that, that paints you in a positive light. And if it's uh, I had a recent project, uh, back earlier this year, uh, hired by some homeowners and they had, they had a bunch of issues. Some of the issues were very valid. They were very they're structural issues. Um, some other ones were just very picky. And I told them, look, some of these are kind of unreasonable. Um, he's within his workmanship tolerances that are acceptable by industry standards. I said, but you know, some of the things are obviously just absolute mess. Um, but you have to be able to, to tell the clients right up front that, you know, the cards are going to fall where they fall. So be prepared when the port comes out, there's going to be things in there that you might not agree with. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, yeah. And I've had those clients that, you know, they, 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 by the time they get to me, they've already gotten an attorney. They've already spent a lot of money, uh, you know, figuring things out to the point where they've brought me in and you know the attorney and the homeowners are like we're getting a whole new pool you know I want this whole thing ripped out we're starting all over and I'm looking at it going no if that's the argument that you guys want to make today I'm not your guy I can't advocate for that because I don't believe in it right. you know if if there were serious issues that would require it absolutely let's go do that but this project is easily fixable 
you know, it may cost a hundred thousand dollars, but it's right. not the nine hundred thousand or a million dollars that you're looking for. That that's we could fix this for fifty grand or a hundred right. grand or something. So let's focus on that. And if we do that, then the other side will probably be a lot more reasonable about, hey, this is the right way to do it. Maybe their insurance will cover it, or maybe the builder can just write a check, or maybe the builder will come back in if they're trustworthy to actually do the repairs. Right. And you fix it. You know, and uh, it, it it's not a big deal, but yeah, it's you know, you, you want to you you as an expert, you want to support the truth right. over everything. And, and you and don't want to advocate and what's reasonable. Yeah, you don't want to advocate an unreasonable position. Right. And not every pool deserves to be ripped not, out. Absolutely, not every pool deserves to be torn out. The, um, you know, a, a similar case was um, an issue with a leaky pool, and the owners were insisting that they wanted the whole thing torn out. And I said, no, it's a twenty thousand dollar fix. Mm -hmm. We just need to address the the leaky skimmer that have rebar around it that's pulling away. We need to just open up the wall. Let's tie some steel in. Let's put a, install a new skimmer. Let's get it tied into the shell. We'll deal with it. Mm -hmm. It's just a very simple fix. Replaster the pool. The biggest expense was replastering the pool. And right. of course, the builder didn't want to deal with that. And I said, well, you know what? Otherwise, they're going to push you for you know all the damage to the landscaping and everything else. I said, if they're willing to do it for twenty grand. Yeah. Run. <laughs> yeah. Let, let, run. Let's talk about insurance for a minute, because I think a lot of people misunderstand how general liability Absolute, insurance absolutely. works, because it doesn't cover the builder's uh, workmanship issues. So so um, a lot of people are under the, the, the misunderstanding that if you build something incorrectly, that your insurance company is going to pay to fix it. And yeah, that's probably the, the big mistake. What the insurance company, what the insurance companies cover is damages to resulting that result from your workmanship. So, for instance, if you have a pool that's leaking, and then the leaking water damp causes damage in a basement or in a wine cellar, it'll pay to fix the damage to the wine cellar. It won't necessarily fix the leaky pool. It'll fix the resulting damage. If your backhoe operator swings his backhoe around and takes out the roof or the eave or a wall or a window, it pays for that kind of damage. So a lot, builders have to understand that, oh, I can just go out there and do whatever I want. My insurance yeah. company is going to step in and cover. There's that, no insurance for stupidity. You know, there is no, <laughs> absolutely. And, and there have been cases where the insurance companies have basically said, you were negligent. We're out of here. Mm -hmm. And they won't pay for that third party. And then the builder's finding that not only do they have to defend themselves against their clients, they have to sue their insurance companies to get that third party coverage. So sometimes they can say, look, you were out and out negligent. Your contract doesn't cover negligence. Yeah. Where we have seen some success is, you know, let, let's say the builder goofed up on the steel and, and the resulting damage was that there was a crack. And to fix the crack required us to strip out the plaster uh, maybe strip out some of the concrete, lace in some new steel, shoot it back in, and then replaster. We would be able to recoup the cost of the plaster because right. the plaster was sort of in the way of doing that other work. And maybe it couldn't just be patched. It, maybe it all had to come out. And maybe that even extended up to the tile. So we've actually you know, been able to get like tile and plaster covered, but the crack itself was uh, you know, really a negligent 
uh, design or construction defect of the original construction, and so that was not covered. Right. And you know what we've tried to do on on some of these cases is is try to get multiple parties to sort of pitch in and help. It's like, hey, if the if the plaster can you know with this issue maybe the plaster can donate labor, and maybe these guys could you know uh, deal with the steel and there's demo why does you know maybe the general contractor can handle the demo because he's got people even though he's not a pool builder he's got demo guys, guys that guys can come jackhammers you know. right and so you know maybe some of sometimes the solution is you, you end up sort of saying well you know what if you do this and what if you do that and all of a sudden everyone's kicking in you know 20 grand a piece in labor or materials right, to, to right. pull it together but you know we've try to be creative in our solutions to make the, the best uh, situation that we can out of it. The, the uh, you know, you were talking about how uh, they're not responsible for, um, you know, for, the, for that negligence. Being able to have good documentation is very critical. Um, I've done a number of cases where I've represented the pool builders and um, maybe the builder didn't, have a third party review their steel or have the structural engineer review the steel um, and the steel guy might not have used the proper steel schedule builder didn't catch it even though that's his the responsibility ultimately falls on them but it allows them to also do cross complaints against some of the subcontractors where we see the subcontractors uh, maybe use the wrong kind of steel chairs or something or steels placed too close to the earth or um, wrong size bars they're placed wrong they're placed wrong within the wall um, so uh, as a builder, um, how important is having lots of pictures of your project from beginning to end? Right, it's, it's critical. And we go through um, at, at each phase and really systematically take photos. It's not like, uh, you know, I'm leaving for the day, I'll just take a couple snapshots. I mean, I, I get in the pool and I start at one end and it's like click, click, click. I wanna get every, you know, 10 feet of that pool or whatever. And I turn the corners and I go all the way around, I get the floor and it's really, you know, by the time I'm done, I should be able to photographically tape all those things together. And have a 3D model. <laughs> and have a 3D model of the picture, right. you know, with, with photos when I'm done. And, and we take it beyond just, you know, it's not just looking at, at rebar, it's really every step of the way. And sometimes there's markers I like to put in the ground to, to tell me, you know, like, you know pipes like I'll put a stake in and I'll, I'll write pipes and I take the photo so that I could see the pipes aligned with the stairway because maybe they're not exactly where they were on paper right but maybe down the road there's some leak at least I could go back to that and say you know what the pipes I know are right here because look at this photo this you know the top steps ends here and it looks like it's eight inches over right. from there and usually you can scale some other objects in yeah. the picture and say look here's a two by four or a two by six now let's take that and lay it here and we can go okay it's 18 inches from the step based on the scale in this image. Yeah. So you can I've even measured pools by counting the, the number of six inch tiles. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> exactly. Ahead. The pool is 43 feet long. <laughs> exactly. So, um, yeah, so uh, if, if builders don't have, I mean, digital cameras are so inexpensive right now. Um, you can get a high red, you know, high quality digital camera. Um, you know, everyone, every field supervisor, uh, anybody who's out in the field with construction should be taking tons of pictures uh, where the pipes are, the excavation, you know, the, the open the open hole, take a picture of, of the soil all the way around. Um, 
The other thing we do is like when we're doing waterproofing or tile work or anything that might be temperature sensitive, we, uh, we have one of those little Ryobi um, infrared uh, uh, monitoring devices. It, it actually clips to your phone and it, it plugs into the headphone jack and you download this Ryobi app. And what's cool about it is it, it shoots out a laser and you can take the temperature reading at that point, but you see it on the screen where the laser's pointing to. It's got the time of day and you can even put in the, the owner's address right. or name or something like that. So let's say we're doing waterproofing and I, I'm reading the spec and it says, you know, not to be applied over 94 degrees right. or something. Well, I make the guys before they start in the morning do that and I tell them every hour I need that documented because if a year from now we have a delamination and the manufacturer says, well, you must have installed it on a hot day or something, I'll say, oh no, every hour <laughs> right. we recorded it and we averaged 14 degrees below what your spec says. So right. it can't be that. And, and we've got photographic evidence of it, and, and I can't make that up later. Right. You know, it's uh, kind of irrefutable. I'm a, little, I'm a little less high-tech than you. I've got those $19 Walmart thermometers that you buy in the garden department, <laughs> right. and, I hang them, and I hang them in the pool. And the same thing. It's the guys, just take a picture. The, they're date-stamped. You know, we've got the picture of the big thermometer. We know, you know, it's within a few degrees. Yeah, but surfaces can have a different temperature we're, than we're usually always shading. We're always, yeah. always shading our work anyway right. as we're moving along. So just knowing what the temperature is in the work area where the guys are working is, is very critical. Um, along those same lines, the other thing that um, I like to do is when, I, when we take delivery of big uh, batches and, of bagged materials, whether it's uh, thin set or mortars, um, I'll photograph the pallets also. So I'll get up and I'll take a, a picture of the, the tear strip off of a mortar bag that shows the date code, the lot, mm -hmm. the batch. Um, and then I'll do the same thing with setting materials. I'll flip the bag over and take a picture of the, the factory's you know, stamping that's on the bag that shows the lot number, the date and time it was manufactured so that I've got a record. Um, and then I'll, I'll usually go back and transfer that to uh, my invoice from the distributor. So in my documentation at the end, it, we come back, the manufacturer says, you know what, we had a bad lot. We had some polymers that kept re-emulsifying. We've got thin sets that keep you know, releasing. It, it's, not your, it's not you. I can say, great, now kick me down materials, labor, tile, we'll right. solve this problem. So right. um, those things happen, but if you can't prove that you're from those lots and you're affected by um, those batches, you know, you're out of luck. Yeah. Yeah, we do a lot of the photos just with uh, cameras, uh, just with our phones now, where everything is automatically going into Dropbox um, as soon as you reconnect to Wi-Fi. And then it's easy to, to tag all the images. And things like that, uh, I always tell my guys, I want every box of anything that's colored. I want a, a, a photo of whatever that color is because we've had owners you know, at the last minute change colors. Like maybe we even have something in writing saying mm -hmm. we're going to use this ivory, but then, you know, at the last minute they're like, oh, well, you know, we actually use this other white, you know, inside the kitchen. And we, that's what we want to use. We want here. glacier white. And yeah. then it's like, and then, you know, sometime down the road, it's like you're, you're trying to do some other tile thing. And all of a sudden you're pulling up ivory because that's what your notes say, but right. you didn't know your guys were told to do something a little bit different. But now if we got photos, it's like, I'm, I'm telling them, hey, go back to the photos. Don't look at what our notes say. Right, because things have changed. <laughs> yeah, things Absolutely. always change. Yeah. Yep. So it's uh, and the other thing that's neat is when I'm in the field. The other the other thing I do with photographs is I always take pictures of my permit cards. So somebody will always call me later. Hey, you got this permit number? Do you have this? Do you have that? It happened just the other day when I was down here. 
my electrician called up and said, I need the permit card. Where is it? And the owners are on vacation. It's locked in the house. And I said, oh, here, let me, I'll text you a picture of the front and back of the permit card. Yeah. So, Even the whole drawings, because yeah. the, the city will, will write stuff on it. They'll put stamps. They'll put conditions. And every once yeah. in a while, I've, I've had my guys leave that stuff out, and some freak storm comes in, and I get there the next morning, and everything's just bled away because it was all in the or rain. They, or they leave it out in the sun. <laughs> yeah. Or they leave it and out in the faded. sun, and it's faded, and there's nothing there. And you go, oh my gosh, what, is that? what does that say? Right. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's very critical. Uh, photographs from, from beginning to end. And even... even um, if the homeowners take those same pictures, it's great because now we can compare images. And especially if you get some of those unreasonable homeowners to say, you know, I, I'm insisting this, this, this. And go, well, look at your picture. In right. your picture, they did it right. Right. And sometimes when they see that it's in, it's they're in their own images and it's their own work product, that's that's proving the fact that saves the builder. They kind of go, oh yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. I mean, what they, what can they say? So. Um, so anyway, so once um, you know, once a defect has has been identified, and the expert gets out to the job site and has created this report of all the things that they've identified, either through photographs, documentation, um, field observations, um, if if the parties are still haven't really come together, and you're kind of suspect of the structure, what's kind of the process of of deconstructing the shell or doing um, you know core drillings? What's kind of the the process there? Yeah, I think for us, a lot of it, it starts with core, coring the pool because the a compression test you can get out of a four inch or six inch diameter core will tell you a lot about what's going on. First of all, we can, uh, you know, the compression test will tell you whether you met the spec. And we've had pools that came up so far below spec, it's like, you know, there's, there's no way to save this pool. It's never going to hold water. Um, and other ones where maybe it didn't quite come up to, you know, maybe 4,000 or 5,000 PSI, maybe it, you know, came up to 3,000 and then we could go back and kind of reverse engineer it and say, yeah, you know what? 3,000 works structurally. It doesn't meet the code requirements in the durability chapter of ACI 318, but maybe we could solve that with a, a very robust waterproofing system or something like that. And, you know, we, we end up spending some more money somewhere else to extend the life of the shell because they didn't get it out of having a, a really hard shell to begin with. Uh, but we would uh, core it um, uh, following the, the C42 standard. Typically, the cores would go off to a lab and we get a report back from them saying, here's what the uh, compression test came out to be. And then petrographic analysis. Usually that is uh, taken from a, a six inch diameter core and uh, sliced up thin and they're using different uh, x-ray you know, diffraction and other techniques to really study microscopically what's going on uh, you know, from a chemical standpoint. What's inside that matrix? It, you know, there's a certain percentage of sand, there's coarse aggregates. You can start to see if there's uh, alkali silica reaction. You could see if there's uh, under, chlorides in the I understand they can the, even identify the, the type of aggregates that are in the mix by looking right. at them. Yeah, I mean, we, we had a case where uh, the, the, uh, the owner, it was a, a commercial pool, and they were claiming that there were problems with the concrete. So we had some testing done and found out that the problems with the concrete were chlorides. And it was all occurring right at the edge of the pool. And when the, the chemistry of the pool was tested, we found out that their salt levels were off the chart. They had been dumping 
chlorine in there for years and years. And of course, chlorine is salt, right? So, right. And it's, it's a salt maker. That's what chlorine means. And the salts get splashed out onto the deck. In fact, I was in this pool while people were doing laps. And every time someone would do a flip turn, you would just see them kick this big wave up onto this deck. Those chlorides were going in there and eating away at the, the steel and rusting everything up. And the, the concrete was just full of chlorides. But if you went 10 feet away, there were no chlorides in there. And we knew based on the trucking tickets that the concrete was the same mix. So right. it wasn't that the concrete was delivered with the chlorides. It was clearly right. originating from the pool. And so it really took the heat off the builder because the builder was able to say, look, this is a maintenance problem. Right. You guys let the chloride level get way too high in the pool and, and didn't and, and, seal uh, your decks. And chloride, and chloride ion penetration, you can't analyze that by looking at it on the surface. No, you literally you can't have to, see anything. You have to yeah. core it and literally send it to a lab so they can look at cross sections. Right. And maybe if the owner had sealed things up better, it might have worked. Maybe the original concrete spec could have been better. Maybe they should have used stainless steel rebar on, on right. the edge details or something. concrete, maybe a waterproof admix. Yeah, so, so there was actually plenty of blame to go around, but you couldn't, you couldn't just blame the guy that poured the concrete. Right. It wasn't, you know, that wasn't the issue. In fact, the concrete looked fantastic everywhere except for right around the pool where the concrete was getting etched and the spalling of the, the corroding steel and everything. Um, sometimes though with that, uh, with that etching that you're, you're talking about, sometimes um, that is a, just a direct result of too much salt in the pool. Sometimes it's uh, bad finish work. So there, there are some other things that occur also in concrete. We don't right. can't always jump to the fact that it's a chlorine. There's, I just want to point out that you know sometimes it's it's bad finishing. It's a it's a windy day. The concrete's you know all dried out and it's got you know, hairline cracks everywhere, eggshell yep. cracking. So. Could have been overworked or something. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, lot, lots of different lots of different things. things. That can so happen. and petrographic analysis identifies helps with a identifies lot of all that those kind issues. Yeah. yeah, it tells us that there's too much bleed water. It yeah, tells us where too much it was paste in the mix. or not enough paste or you know, whatever. It's so it's a it's a very telltale. Um, it's it's really pulling back the curtain and letting you, letting you know what's happening within the cement. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know some of the um, some of the more troubling cases that I've been involved with usually deal with electricity, um, stray electricity around a pool. Um, whenever there's a electrolysis or galvanization or even stray voltage in the pool, it's uh, very hard to to chase those down. Um, I've had the, the privilege of working with uh, Dr. Hamilton um, on a case, and um, he literally spent four days trying to find the source of electricity, hmm. um, and it wasn't coming from the pool. It was coming from a commercial dryer in the basement. You know, they had a commercial laundry at this estate, and it was whenever they ran the dryer. So it was really hmm. a, it was a swinging short that you would only find whenever the dryer ran. Right. So it's when the housekeeper was there washing sheets is when and washing linens is when they had stray voltage in the pool. Hmm. So it was really one of those things that was very difficult to find. And <laughs> he, he basically we got to the house and he says, OK, I need you to go through the house and start every appliance one at a time, every light switch, every circuit, go through each room, the entire, you know, four stories of the house. I need to go through and turn the lights on. I need you to run. If there's a blow dryer. I want you to turn it on. Uh, dishwasher, washing machines, just go through. Fortunately, we started in the basement and worked up, so we found the dryer right away. Right. But it was still, he said, I still need to do everything all the way to the attic. You know, let's go through, let's cycle the air conditioners, let's cycle everything. Mm-hmm. And it turned out it was a function of the grounding rods were actually in rock, 
So they didn't have a lot of conductivity to yeah, earth. Yeah. So instead of that stray voltage seeking, discharging itself into the ground at the service entrance, it was following the grounding conductors down to the pool mm-hmm. and energizing the pool. No fault of the pool, but it's one of those things that, you know, sometimes it takes tens of thousands of dollars to figure out where you've got other problems. Yeah. And the so, solution there was just turn on the garden hose for 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, <laughs> what, the what they did was they added, they added a, uh, they added a second grounding rod and added a drip irrigation system around it to mm-hmm. keep the soil around the grounding rods wet. So as part of the sprinkler system. So every day that or whenever the irrigation system came on, it would keep the soil wet around the grounding rods to keep the conductors to increase the conductivity to the soil. Right. Um, but again, I learned something there that there actually is a section of the national electric code that talks about, the conductivity of the soil to the grounding rod. There's actually a standard. Mm. Um, not that electricians ever measure it, but right. there's actually a standard. So he said, well, if we add some extra grounding rods, obviously get rid of the washing machine or the, dish, the dryer and get a new one. Um, and then he went through and they upgraded a bunch of electrical service. You know, they put arc faults in, GFCIs, and did a bunch of other things to make sure that, that we weren't going to be having that electrical spillage anymore. Right. But it's, uh, you know, oftentimes it's not the pool, even though we're brought in as the because that's where the problem's manifesting itself. Oftentimes it's not the pool. Um, unfortunately, in that case, there were a lot of issues with the pool also. It can't start as an electrical issue. It ended up, there were a lot of other issues with the pool. Right. Um, which right. the pool builder, had they not had the bad dryer, the pool builder would have never gotten drawn into, <laughs> into, into all the things. But yeah. you know, it is what it is when you land on the job site. Yeah, and so like this testing we're talking about, you know, if that's sort of the first step is you're, you're diagnosing electrical issues or coring the pool and trying to figure out what's going on, there's sort of this reverse engineering process. And in a way, you were sort of reverse engineering this, this electrical stuff. And, and we do that with, with structural calculations or even hydraulic stuff. And you and I have worked on some of that stuff too, where we're looking at, at pipes that are undersized and pumps that are oversized. And we can reverse engineer it and say, well, the maximum flow we can put through that pipe is this. And, you know, if we put in a variable speed pump and we lock it down, we could get, you know, this kind of a turnover, but maybe the solution is we add another pump right. or, and, a, and another filter or something to get the turnover. I mean, I, I saw or, at Penton, or, we, or we split, or we split drains because we don't yeah, have enough. Yeah. I had uh, Dave Penton help me out with a project in Beverly Hills that had this situation where the water quality wasn't very good. And, they really should have had more filtration. And when we looked at the plumbing, it was also undersized. There was no way they were ever going to get there. But the whole pool was all tile, all glass tile. And it was a big pool. So it, was, it would have been a very expensive and invasive process to figure it out. But I figured out a way to reconfigure the outlets and actually add another pump and filter to achieve a proper turnover um, without having to tear apart this this pool so there's easy fixes for that stuff and you know the builder came in sometimes there's easy fixes yeah sometimes right um so the reverse engineering sometimes it's calculations and and we can show just like we're calculating out a new pool if if the worksheet says it's going to fail because uh, the wall is yielding too much or it's going to fail because the steel is stressed too much or the concrete section isn't thick enough for example we would find out the same thing if we had an existing structure and plugged in the same variables into the sheet, it would tell us whether it was going to work or not. And if it says NG, that means no good. And it's like, well, (laughs) there's not another engineer that's going to have a different sheet that says it is good. We all are plugging in the same numbers and we're pretty much all using the same software to do it with. So we all come up with this answer. No good. All right. So what do you do then? Well, you 
I don't know, maybe tear it out, do a partial tear out. Some, somehow you start working out what the, the solution pool, is. And that's, you, you start debating the, the possible yeah, solutions to yeah, the Yeah, and then, then your report starts turning into um, uh, what, is, what are the fixes. You know? And if it's a tear out, then it's kind of easy. What, what did you spend to do it? What's it going to cost to take it out? At least get the owner back to the point where they could start over. So they get you know, a check for that, I guess. If it's a repair and, and everyone's still on good terms, maybe the original builder stays in. Usually not, because usually by the time it's turned into that deep of a lawsuit, not <laughs> the owner doesn't even want the people on their property without right. their attorneys present, you know? Uh, and that's just, that's just an unfortunate thing that happens when people stop communicating. And if everyone kept communicating, they would never even be in the lawsuit. They would right. just work it out, and everyone would save a lot of time and money. But no one ever thinks about that. They take a hard line, and, and that's it. Well, and I think the builders that tend to take the hard line are the ones that have probably made that call maybe on a prior project, say, well, I'm just going to call my insurance company. Well, the insurance company says, <laughs> Right. <laughs> that's usually their first response. It's like, we don't cover that. Yeah. Yeah, we can't cover your stupidity. Right. We can't cover <laughs> you your workmanship. You gotta go fix it on your own. We can't own cover time. your workmanship. And right. then, then it's that, okay, how deep do I dig into my pocket yeah. to, to make that make that work? So um, yeah, so there's a lot of uh, things that go into deconstructing a project and um, hopefully our listeners have kind of come to the uh, realization that you don't want us on your job sites um, after the fact. And it's probably a lot easier to spend a few dollars up front to hire somebody, if you think you might be in over your head, to to uh, pay the consultants up front to keep you out of the lawsuits and keep you out of litigation. Yeah, and education too. I mean, I I know you know like classes that we do through Genesis. Some of them cost thousands of dollars, but that's pretty cheap insurance when you start to think about you know what some of these projects cost. You know, even a fifty thousand dollar pool, one little mistake. You know, if it costs you 10%, that's $5,000. Right. Well, what if you spent 3000 taking a really good class <laughs> and then didn't make all those mistakes anymore? Right. Now you just saved a couple grand and you got to go out and a have a little grand fun. A couple grand over and over and over and over again. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> right. exactly. And, and that $50,000 project, if it had to be torn out, might cost 150 to rip. To, oh, absolutely. To replace you know, because, it's always far more than yes, the original pool costs. Because you have all the surrounding landscape and infrastructure and everything. Plus, you got to tear the pool out. And the new pool is going to be built to a different standard. Yeah. And I've, <laughs> I've also found a common theme with these is that the pool that was originally built, one of the reasons the builder didn't just go in and keep fixing stuff is because he probably lost his ass on the job because he underbid <laughs> it to begin with. That pool could have never been done for 50000 right. by any other builder, right? He bid it for fifty, built it for fifty, lost money, and that's why he wasn't willing to step up and fix the stuff. Right. So now it's, it, it shouldn't be a surprise that things cost three times as much to fix it. Okay, so uh, I wanted to thank you for uh, joining us on uh, this episode of Ask the Masters. And I look forward to seeing you again. Thanks. All right. Thanks for listening to the Ask the Masters podcast. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page each week on Tuesdays for new episodes of the show. I also want to encourage you to stop by the Ask the Masters Facebook page and invite other like-minded individuals to join us there as well. Feel free to jump into the conversations and even post your own questions. We want to create a community which fosters learning and discovery for the betterment of us all. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please be sure to subscribe 
and feel free to share.